This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Have you ever stopped to wonder what exactly success means to you? Is it money, fame, power, all of the above or none at all? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Redefining Success, a show where we speak to passionate people from various fields about their lives, what makes them tick and what the word success means to them. Joining me on the show today is Kula Ratnam Vijay Kumar. He's the Program Manager at Tunku Abdul Rahman Foundation. Welcome to the show, Kula. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. You're currently attached to Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman and Closing the Gap. Tell me about the work that you do there. I'm currently a program manager at Yaisan Tukabdurahman where I oversee three programs along with my team. Uh, first program is the Closing the Gap program which is a university access program for high potential, high need Malaysian youth in secondary school. Uh, we're actually about to open a new cohort in a month if anyone's interested, so if you're 16 to 17 years old. Um, we also run a scholarship, uh, the Tukabdurahman Abdurrahman Scholarship which is a scholarship and leadership development program for students all over Malaysia. Uh, that we've been running for quite a while now uh, and that I've been working on since 2020. Uh, And we also run Future Ready, which is an employability program that we run together with one of our corporate partners. Uh, So we run programs for Malaysian students uh, at every transition stage in their life, from high school to higher education and from higher education to employability. Uh, So I get to work quite closely with students and with my team to, to support students as they make these choices. Right. So let's talk about you and, and you know, your perspective of careers and, and all of that, right? Um, before we get into your, why you decided to you know, venture into education and all of that, how do you define success? What does success mean to you? I think I struggled a lot with this question in the past. Uh, I think I had like a cold, an internal crisis because of this. And I think what I realized was that success to me was just two things. Mm-hmm. Um, one was to see that I was making a positive impact on the world. Um, and two was that I was learning something new. Right. Um, and of course, beyond that, you know, there's just like enjoying your life. Um, but, you know, they talk about this in philosophy, right? There are two mm-hmm. types of happiness. You know, there's that happiness of, you know, just like pleasurable things in life, like good food or whatever. Right. Um, and then there's that meaningful happiness that comes from, you know, what gives you meaning in life. And for everybody, that's different. Uh, so for me, it was the pursuit of knowledge and uh, you know making a positive impact on the world. And right. I think that's been my compass with regards to success. Right. So has your definition of success changed over time? Because you said that at one point in your life, you struggled with this question. I don't think it has changed per se as much mm-hmm. as I figured out my own definition of success. Right. Because I think growing up, you know, in school, my idea was that, oh, you know, I'm supposed to get some kind of job and make a good amount of money. And that would mean that I am successful. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was not a vision that motivated me precisely because it was not my vision. Right. Um, You know, I was just kind of doing what other people were telling me to do. Like my parents were wanting me to do medicine. Typical. Yeah, typical. (laughs) Uh, So my vision was like, oh, I got to get into medicine school and Mm -hmm. then become a doctor and be successful. And I think what changed was realizing what was important to me and what wasn't um, and realizing 
some of the reasons underpinning, you know, some of these goals. Like, oh, why do people want you to be a doctor? Oh, it's because my parents wanted me to appear successful. Which, right. is, which is, you know, it's a fine goal to have for your children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm sure they had good intentions. But I would say the change was just realizing what I wanted versus what other people wanted for me. Right. When, when did this change happen and how did it happen? I think I would say it happened in stages across the ages of 17 to probably 20. How this started was when I was in secondary school, I would say I was very aimless. Um, I didn't know why I was doing anything beyond that people were telling me to do it. Right. Um, and even when I was transitioning into pre-university, I didn't really have a solid reason to go into any pre-university. Um, and at that point, I was still aiming to do medicine because that's what I was told to do. Right. Um, and I suddenly realized that, oh, you know, wait a minute, I can actually choose the things that I'm interested in. So I was advised at that point, you know, to take a certain certain subjects to prepare you for medicine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I decided, I'm actually really interested in psychology, which I had never heard of before then. Right. Um, and one of my college teachers, you know, you know, first day of college, you know, and explain all the subjects available to you yeah. and you're supposed to choose the subjects. So my college lecturer was explaining psychology. I think she spoke about it for like two minutes. And I was like, wow, this sounds fun. I've never heard about it before. Um, you know, it's about understanding people, the way that they think and everything else. And I was like, I guess I need that. I don't really understand myself. So I went for it. And I think that was a big shift for me because I felt like, wow, I'm really studying something that I'm so deeply interested in that it doesn't feel like work. You know, mm. I had a really easy, enjoyable time. And I was like, wow, I didn't know life could be like this. Because I was so used to like cracking my head on like admats and I hated it and I couldn't do it. Right. I mean, I could, but it was so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was so surprised that, you know, something could be easy. So I would say this shift was just realizing that one, I could make choices for myself, meaningful, big choices that, you know, would alter my whole life. Um, and two, that I could make good choices for myself. Right. Um, and I think that's when uh, my mom as well, she started taking a very kind of like hands-off route because she was like, okay, clearly you're able to make decisions for yourself. Right. So I don't need to make decisions for you anymore. Um, so because I kind of understand where she was coming from, because before this, I was very aimless. So I think it was that moment that really brought about that realization that, okay, I need to start choosing and I can't just go with what I feel other people want. Um, and that's what led me to realize, okay, what do I need to be successful in my own eyes? So yeah. you've been working in education for some time now. Um, prior to this, you were in Teach for Malaysia, you were a teacher. Oh, why did you decide to become a teacher? Because as you said, that even when you were finally, you know, starting to sort of discover your areas of interest and, and start to make decisions um, for yourself in this aspect, you studied psychology. So when did the teacher aspect come into play? I think my first experience teaching was actually in university. Many people join psychology because they assume that psychology doesn't have much to do with math or science. Uh, And when they join psychology, they're in for a rude awakening uh, (laughs) because psychology is very focused on statistics. And it is a class that so many students struggle with because a lot of people join psychology with the idea that I don't have to do math. Um, And here's the thing, I didn't really like math that much, but I love statistics because I felt like, wow, finally this is maths with a purpose. Mm -hmm. Because I was like, why am I doing log? Why am I doing this? And none of it made sense to me, but statistics was so clear and it made so much sense. So I was actually teaching a lot of people statistics and I found that I really enjoyed it. 
like when I thought about it, like, oh, if I think about my day, what do I enjoy doing? It's statistics. And I think the pivotal moment that um, made me shift into education was actually in my last semester of university. Right. Uh, I took a class called Learning and Development Psychology, which is basically about the science of how people learn. Right. And I remember being so angry when I learned this subject because I was like, why am I learning this at the end of my education? Clearly, I'm not really going to be applying it much. Um, this is something that I kind of wish I had been taught much earlier. It's even like stuff like, okay, how do you memorize things that you need to memorize? How do you deeply learn something? How do you know that you know something? Um, and how do you effectively learn new things? Right. Uh, and how do you effectively teach things? And I was like, wow, I wish more of my teachers knew this as well. Uh, and I wish I had known it too, so I could teach myself things. Um, and I think with that anger, I... And with that enjoyment of teaching other people, I realized like, okay, you know, I should be moving into education. Uh, but before I moved into Teach for Malaysia, actually, I spent a year as a teaching assistant, um, right. teaching statistics and a bit of psychology, actually. It was a gradual shift from psychology, psychology and education to just education. So you were teaching uh, in university, is it? Yeah, I was assisting right. lecturers. Right, okay. Was there a teacher when you were growing up that changed your life? I would say there were a few. And I think the one that surprised me the most, I think, was when I was in college. Um, one of my teachers, my math teacher, um, she was actually really nice to me, even though I was really bad at math. Right. Uh, and I found that surprising because, you know, coming from school, more often than not, my math teachers were quite mean. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're math people and they're like, how do you not get math, you know? Um, whereas with this teacher, she was like, you know what, it's okay. You know, I'll explain it to you like 20 times if you need me to explain it to you 20 times. Um, and I think it was getting that compassion. And I mean, I didn't just get that compassion in college. I also got it in school. But I mean, like getting it, especially in college, was very surprising to me. Because I was like, wow, you know, education doesn't have to be a process of like someone metaphorically beating you over the head right. um, until you learn something. You know, education can actually be very kind and compassionate uh, and you can really feel listened to even though you are bad at something. Um, and I think a teacher that kind of had a very profound impact on me was my learning and development lecturer in Sanwa University. Mm -hmm. um, her name is Miss Elaine Yong. She's still there. Um, I actually had a conversation with her recently and I think seeing how she taught us because, you know, she taught learning psychology. I mean, clearly she knew how people learn. Um, so the way that she taught us and the assignments that she gave us, I just found it very inspiring. And I realized like, wow, education could be like this all the time, actually. And I think that's what really drove me to consider alternative career paths. You mentioned something that I want to piggyback off and ask the next question. And you said education could be like this all the time. So what do you think are the key qualities that someone needs to have to be a good teacher or to be a good educator? What is your philosophy of education? Ooh. <laughs> um, I know, okay, there are a lot of different views on this, but to right. me, mm -hmm. um, the most important thing that an educator should have is compassion. Because right. I think fundamentally, before you go into teaching content, um, Teaching is about building relationships. You need to build a strong, compassionate relationship with the people who are learning from you. Uh, because ultimately, and I mean, Paulo Freire, you know, Pedagogy of the Press, he says this too, right. um, you know, teaching is a process of dialogue. Um, right. 
and you know for that to be dialogue there needs to be mutual trust so that ability to build relationships and compassion it is so so important and i think that is the fundamental quality of a teacher it's not how many a's you got in spm or how how high your cgpa was none of those things really matter as long as you know what you're talking about it's really how well can you invest people into that relationship with you uh, to go along that learning journey with you right so what would you say is the role of a teacher exactly because what you mentioned um, is very interesting you know because a lot of people tend to judge a, a teacher's quality by the grades the students achieve so for example this teacher has a 90% um you know passing rate among all the students or this teacher if you study under them always guarantees at least b plus or mm. guaranteed a you know people tend to look at teachers that way in their ability mm. to deliver a students grades um yeah. how what how do you look at it? what exactly is the role of a teacher this is a complicated question right because When people look at a teacher's ability to deliver grades, you know it's a consequence of a high stakes exam system. Right. Um so I can't really blame a parent or a student or a principal or anyone for looking at it that way because you know what gets measured gets managed and that's the main thing that we measure. Mm-hmm. Um but for me I think in an ideal world uh, a teacher is someone who would support you on your journey of curiosity. an exploration and of course that's easier said than done um you know especially with the class sizes that we have with teacher workloads that we have um but i like the idea of um we call it like inquiry based education where you know it's really based on like these questions that students have or problem focused education you know where we focus on problems in our world and how we want to solve them right uh, rather than like okay let's memorize these dates let's memorize um these things Uh, but you know the system needs to move in lockstep on the show with me today is Kolaratnam Vijay Kumar program manager at Tunku Abdul Rahman Foundation after the break i ask him why he does what he does keep it here on redefining success bfm 89.9 Welcome back to Redefining Success. I'm Dashan Johan, and on the show with me today is Kula Ratnam Vijay Kumar, Program Manager at Tunku Abdul Rahman Foundation. So, Kula, I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier about how you know when you went to uni, you experienced something that you didn't before, which is eh, studying can be quite easy in that sense compared to before. And I had a similar experience um, growing up. It's not that I didn't like learning, but I didn't see like the, the purpose of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, getting good grades. I didn't understand why I need to do this, and I, studying was not like an easy thing, especially when you talk about maths and science, which I was through nobody's fault was also sort of pushed into that mm-hmm. direction. But when I went to uni and I and I studied journalism and, and media culture and society and all, suddenly. I could grasp everything whereas yeah. in 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 high school when I was doing admeds I didn't comprehend it it's similar mm-hmm. to what you mentioned so I'm wondering how important is it that people pursue things that they love I mean I think this may may not be selfish of me to mm-hmm. say but I think it is very very important mm-hmm. I mean pursuing a passion doesn't mean that you have to do it as a job right. uh, but I think to me the purpose of you know a human life is to flourish in your own way right and To me, that involves uh, pursuing your passions, whatever right. they are. 
Uh, and I recognize not all passions can be commercialized. Um, and that's okay, as long as you know you have time for it in your yeah. own life. Um, and I think coming back to what you said, right? One of the issues that I do have with the education system in my personal experience is that, yeah, we're all funneled to study sciences, uh, like it or not, because like, oh, you should be studying sciences because that's what successful people do. And you contrast this to university where I would say, you know, all courses are given, you know, a fair shake. Right. Is that something that we need to change philosophically when it comes to primary education, secondary education? Because it is here where everything is people are forced into boxes and sometimes people don't even know that there are so many different other career paths out there. Mm -hmm. And then when we go to university, suddenly there's like 700 different courses and it makes me wonder why those aren't available in primary and secondary school as well. I largely think it's a question of scale. You know, mm. we, we talk about a lot of nice things that should happen in education. And of course, I agree with all of these nice things. Um, but if you look at it, you know, the Malaysian school system is meant to educate millions of children all the time, right? Contrast to the amount of students that go to university, it's a lot less. And teachers aren't exactly well paid. Oftentimes, you'll just see like maybe three or four counselors serving a school of like 1,500 to 2,000 students. And the question with primary and secondary school is really how do you equip students, you know, to enter society at scale? And many of the things that we complain about, like um, exams and all that, it's really just current solutions to the problem of scale. Because right. if it was just like one student, one teacher, you know, you could solve every educational problem, but yeah. it's not the case. So I would definitely like it for, you know, students to be exposed to many sorts of careers in primary school, for us to look into all these different forms of education. Uh, but I recognize standardizing this across different contexts in rural areas, in urban areas, um, it's going to be rough. And if we're only able to do this in urban areas and not in rural areas, aren't we in a way worsening inequality as well? Absolutely. Um, which right. is why I don't envy the Minister of Education many mm -hmm. difficult decisions to make. Earlier you mentioned that you were sort of encouraged to do medicine when you were growing up. Mm -hmm. because of the status in which, you know, doing medicine carries, right? You, you can appear mm -hmm. successful, you know, if there's a doctor in front of your name and, and things like that. Uh, how do your parents feel now about the career path that you have chosen? I can share that my mom is mm -hmm. quite proud, I would say. I mean, my mom ended up studying a STEM degree, but I think I get the sense that, you know, her dream in life was to do teaching as well. Mm -hmm. So I think she's kind of happy that I became a teacher um, but I, I, I'm lucky in the sense that I think once my mom realized I figured things out, you know, she kind of stepped away and let me do my thing, which is not a privilege that everybody has. I'm glad to have my mom's support. You're still in education, mm -hmm. um, but you're not actively teaching right now. Why did you stop being a teacher per se? So when I was teaching, I was teaching English and history. And I realized that what I really enjoyed was teaching English, but I was actually trained to teach history. And right. even though I developed, you know, a love of history within myself during that time, which I'm very grateful for, um, I found it quite difficult to transfer that love of history over to my students, in part because of the demands of the history syllabus. I'm sure perhaps there are some teachers who can do it, uh, but I could not. Mm -hmm. um, and so I realized that I felt that the way that I was made to teach history or that I felt the way that I had to compromise, it wasn't 
suitable for the way that I wanted to be personally as an educator. Right. And I realized that, you know, from the things I've been saying, you know, that I like uh, cultivating students about the things that they're interested in and helping students to express themselves. And I realized that that was the thing that I really enjoyed, getting students to express themselves, right. getting students to think about their goals and mm-hmm. moving away from a syllabi entirely. And of course, these things are important, but they just weren't the things that I were interested. I was interested right. in. So what I found most enjoyable when I was teaching in school was actually the programs that I would run after school. So, you know, for example, I used to do a debate training program with my students. I used to do public speaking programs with my students. When I was a teacher, I actually sent my students for closing the gap as well. Uh, and I was really excited to see, you know, the ways that they grew and developed uh, because for some people, you know, you feel like, oh, you know, in school, I just learn whatever's on the syllabus. And it is outside of school or in competitions or in extracurriculars that I learn like these things that, mm-hmm. you know, I really remember moving forward. And even for me, I'm, I'm not going to deny that school is important, but the things I remember did not happen during school hours. Right. And when I realized that, okay, if the things that make me happy are the things that I'm doing outside of my actual role as a teacher, which was to teach English and history, I should be looking to do that full time. Uh, which is why I moved into Yayasan Tukla Brahman, mm-hmm. which is all about supporting students to transition into higher education. And I'm really happy. And I think the only way I could have found this career is through this progressive exploration of what I like. You know, when I graduated from university, I wasn't like, oh, yeah, I want to do higher education transition. Uh, I, had, I had no idea. I was just like, well, teaching people seems nice. Let's do right. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried it out in a university. And I was like, okay, how about I try it out in government school and actually learn a bit more about how to teach. And that's when I got my postgraduate diploma from Mm. Institute Pendidikan Guru at the same time. And that's when I realized that, okay, the things that I like teaching are not necessarily things I've covered in the national school syllabus. For good reason, of course, you know, you kind of need to cover like basic science and basic math and all that, of course. And it was through this progressive exploration and each step of my career brought me closer to realizing what I want to do. And even now, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, what do I want to do next? Because, for example, right now I'm looking into doing my master's mm-hmm. um, because I've been very focused on practice. But one of the things I'd like to firm up on is theory uh, mm-hmm. because it is, you know, the combination of theory and practice that makes us effective. It's, it's a progressive journey of exploration. And that's yeah. how I got here. <laughs> what are some of the challenges you face in your career where you are right now? I think it is uh, balancing how people feel about tertiary education. Because, for example, in the current cultural landscape, I think we're in a period of time where people are kind of rejecting university education. Maybe not in terms of enrollment, but in terms of just the things that they say, you know, like, oh, all I got is a piece of paper. Um, Or you don't actually need to go to university. You can just learn how to code online for free. Um, And at the same time, balancing it with how we've seen tertiary education change people's lives, especially, you know, people who come from high-need families where they're the first in the family to go to university. Um, And I think the conversation around, like, the usefulness of a degree is something that we need to talk about more. I think balancing that, and I think on a personal level, I think it is balancing comparisons with, like, my peers who work in corporate roles. Um, Because, you know, we all know that... NGO pay or, you know, non-corporate pay um, doesn't always scale the same way that corporate pay does. Um, And especially with Instagram, you know, it's so easy for you to see what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very easy to compare yourself and wonder, like, am I actually successful? Could I be doing more? Is this person doing better than me? 
And you, you try to beat back these voices, but you know, it's an, it's an everyday struggle sometimes. How do you deal with, with those thoughts that come into your mind? I think it's almost human nature uh, to mm-hmm. kind of look at other people and want more. You know, like I know they did a survey and they asked people, you know, do you feel that you are middle class? You know, do you feel like you're kind of 50% in terms of the income scale? And most people feel that they are, even though most people who say that are actually, you know, much higher up. You know, they are actually much better off relative to other people. So like um, to give you some context, you know, like the median salary in Malaysia for a degree graduate, median here meaning like the exact 50% mark, Mm -hmm. um, it is like 2,200 or something like that. So if you're earning more than that, um, you know, you are in the top 50%. Yep. Um, and if we consider that, you know, a lot of people who work in KL, I'm not going to deny, you know, that it's a struggle, right? And life is not easy. I'm not going to say like, oh, we should be grateful, you know, to be earning more yeah. than 2,200. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that um, it's interesting because the way that our perspectives are so skewed. Yes. You know, um, and I think if I was a millionaire, I would also look at like multi-millionaires and be like, wow, you're so rich. I wish I could be as rich as you. Mm-hmm. And I think that was something that I also realized when I was talking to people about my own post-SPM journey. And my own post-SPM journey was only possible because my family had money. Mm-hmm. Not like a crazy amount of money, but, you know, enough money that I could enter private education. Yeah. I mean, I did get like um, discounts and all that. But still, I had enough money in my family that I could do that. And that was a privilege that many people didn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we always compare ourselves with people who have more and then we try to beat ourselves up and wish we had more too. But it's kind of weird when you realize that there are other people comparing themselves to you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is the nature of living in a capitalist society. We're always comparing and we always want more. Um, but I think past a certain point, more will not make you happier. Yeah. Um, because I feel like, um, you know, if you have a slightly bigger apartment or a slightly nicer car, how much does that materially change your life? So I, I think that's, that's what I tell myself because I think it is easy to compare yourself and want to catch up. And I think yeah. from a young age, you know, even in school, when you look at who's first in class, we're primed to compete. Yep. And you don't have grades anymore in adult life, but you do have a salary. Yes, And I think we've just naturally made that transition and we need to stop because, you know, in the end, we're all going to die anyway uh, and you can't bring your money with you. I think that's really well said. Now, since you brought that up, right, there could be some listeners who are generally curious about this. Being in the education sector, especially when you're in the NGO side of things, can make money, Akula. I mean, you just need to find a a place where, you know, you feel you can grow and you're not exploited. Mm -hmm. And just make sure you get a fair wage. So my advice, I guess, if someone were to enter this field is that you should talk to people who are in it and find out, you know, is what you're making uh, appropriate? And I would say that this is advice that doesn't just constrain itself to the NGO sector. Even in the corporate sector, there are people who are exploited for uh, wages that are far below what people in similar positions are earning. And I think in general, um, something to remember is that you know, while our parents have our best interests at heart, generally their information is like 20 years out of date. Uh, and even for me, right, if I were to give advice to somebody, I feel like my information is five, 10 years out of date as well. You know, we're all operating with models that are somewhat out of date. Uh, and the best way really is to get information right now. Like, I am quite surprised um, by how little information I have. 
sometimes about certain industries. Like I didn't know that I could live a decent life in an NGO either because I was right. I was really thinking, you know, when I started in this field, like, oh, I can assume that I'm only going to get minimum wage. Like I'm going to get like 1,200 ringgit a month. And I asked myself, you know, is that enough money? And I thought about it and I was like, well, you know, if I don't have children, you know, and I guess if I don't have a family and if I am okay with like living in like a one bedroom, like sharing with other people, uh, maybe taking train every day, I could do this. And I realized that, you know, my job is most of my waking life. Right. And it was more important to me that I enjoy my job than, you know, how much money I'm making. Of course, you know, if you have a lot of dependents, you know, if you have you have debts, if you have things that require money to deal with, that's not a calculation that you can make. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think having an idea of, okay, what's the minimum amount of money that I need is helpful. Because of course, you know, you should get a living wage, you should get a dignified right. wage, but that may not be something that you can attain immediately if you look at the industry average, because there are some roles that start at like 1.8, 2.0, um, and you know, different industries um, start different wages. So I guess if I can give a comparison, because uh, you know, in Waita, we do practice salary transparency. We do have a fresh graduate role open right now. Um, and it's roughly 3,000 ringgit a month, which is a very serviceable salary. And yes. I think people are surprised when they hear that. Because they assume that you get minimum wage in the NGO sector. I was surprised when I realized too that um, fresh graduate pay in the NGO sector in certain places is actually very serviceable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for a lot of students, especially, it's important to check, you know, whatever assumptions that we have. Because you know, people always say like, ah, you know, you're going to the NGO field, there's no money. Um, but we got to check what people say with reality. Absolutely. So apart from money, right, um, let's say if I'm a university student right now or a college student or even a high schooler, whatever it may be, um, and I'm like, okay, I want to do what Kola is doing. Um, what do I do? What do I study? I would say that Specific to my role, okay, because, you know, I oversee programs a lot. Um, It involves designing programs, executing programs, running recruitment, um, measuring impact. I would say that, of course, you know, certain degrees would um, benefit. For example, you know, if you did a degree in psychology or you did a degree in education, uh, you know, something related to teaching people things, of course, it would benefit you. But I found that um, people who do well, um, in these types of roles, they generally have actual teaching experience, uh, be that in a volunteering role um, or like in university. So I would say, you know, really look at um, extracurricular activities and look at volunteering and look at, you know, the things that you can do in your own life, even that simple as just teaching somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot that you can learn online about, you know, how to teach um, and how to design programs. Um, I would say we have, we're reaching a point, right, where we cannot rely on what we learn in our degrees anymore. Like, you have to go out of your way to learn things specific to the industries that you want to get into. Um, and that includes, like, an understanding of, you know, education inequity. You know, what does that mean? Um, the challenges that university students face and what university students need, really, to transition into employment successfully or what high school students need to transition into higher education. Uh, We actually also have an intern role open uh, and, uh, you know, the best way to learn is to do. So if (laughs) anyone's interested, you know, it's on our LinkedIn, (laughs) Uh, please do apply. And, you know, I can tell you directly how you can become me. (laughs) I think that's fantastic. Um, So, you know, earlier you talked about the challenges um, that you face right now. And, you know, the days where, 
you know, you sometimes tend to compare um, with other people. Am I making enough and all of that? But yet, you have persevered. You have um, decided that this is what, this is the part you want to continue um, treading on, um, at least um, for the for the immediate future. Um, why do you do what you do? What is it that drives you, especially on days where you are doubting um, what you're doing? You know, when we talk about our own lives, right, we always pinpoint you know, that there was somebody who helped us in a critical moment. And right. sometimes what they did for us is not something, you know, astounding. Like for me, I was talking about someone who talked about psychology for two to five minutes. And that changed my life. But for my lecturer, that's, you know, that's something that they do like every semester with right. every new intake. And I think knowing that even sometimes the things that we don't feel are significant can really change somebody's life. And I've seen that happen too, you know, like people have shared with me that like, oh, you know, this conversation that you've had or this thing that you said, you know, it really impacted me because we never know um, what things that we do, big or small, will change the lives of people. And knowing that, you know, as long as I keep at it, um, you know, I have the potential to make a positive impact on somebody's life. Um, that's enough for me because I think I got this advice uh, long ago uh, from one of my seniors at Teach for Malaysia who said that, you know, oftentimes we do focus on trying to change things for everybody. Right. But, you know, I think especially when things get hard, just focus on making a difference in one person's life. Right. Uh, and that, that's what I hold on to, you know, like sometimes, you know, we try to change the world. And of course, that's a good goal. And it, but it can get discouraging sometimes. Uh, and it's important to see that you can still make a difference, even if it's just in one person's life. And that matters. So earlier you defined what success means to you, how do you measure growth? To be completely honest, I would say the way that I measure my own growth is if I can look back and feel that, oh, the things that I was handling in the past were quite easy. Like, oh, I'm not sure why you're struggling with it. So I think an experience that most Malaysian people have, right, is that, you know, you dread SPM, then you finish SPM, and then like two years later, you look back like, wow, SPM was actually not so bad. You know, I wish I could do that again. So something I've been very lucky to be able to do is that I can look back at the things I was struggling on and be like, wow, actually these things are easy. Of course, they're easy because you went through them. But I think that's a sure sign of growth. Like uh, when I first started my career, um, it took me one day to write an email because I just, I just never really wrote emails. And I can look back and be like, okay, you know, that was clearly very hard for me some time ago. But, you know, I do that all the time now. Um, and I think it's important to also cultivate that gratitude and realize, right, like, oh, the things that used to be hard are actually now really easy. And I, I would say primarily that's what I look at. I think that's a very interesting way of looking at, at growth, right? Just looking at the little things. Because sometimes people tend to be so wrapped up in the big things, you know, am I, am I making like the big bucks now, things like that. But I think what, what you say, you know, it, it's really less looking at the little things and sometimes people may not even realize that they are actually growing, right? Yeah. I think the philosophical way to look at it, mm -hmm. right? is that I don't want to put the, my own idea of my growth in someone else's hands, you know? Right. Um, and like, if I tie it to things like salary, um, you know, like how prestigious I am, I think that's very dangerous, right? Because I'm giving away my power to somebody else. And somebody else can be like, oh, you know, Kula, you're doing a great job. You've grown. Here's some extra money. Of course, it's nice if people say that. Um, but I don't want to evaluate my own growth through that lens. Um, so I, I really want my perception of my growth to be within my power uh, because I mean I am after all doing it for my own satisfaction I'm not growing for somebody else I'm growing for mm -hmm. myself so I feel like I should be the one to judge it as well 
Now, before we wrap this conversation up, Kula, what does it feel like doing what you love? Um, what are the joys of doing what you're doing? It's knowing that I don't wake up dreading to do my job. You know, like I think growing up, I heard a lot of stories like, oh God, it's Monday morning. Um, and you know, of course, sometimes I feel like, oh, I wish I could sleep in. But I don't be like, oh my God, I have to go to my job. Right. Um, and I think I really appreciate that because um, knowing that I'm doing something that brings me joy, I think, you know, I look forward to going to work. Um, and I think the things that make me proud are really seeing our students go through our program and seeing how they grow and change. Um, for example, I think just recently, we held an alumni induction event for our scholars, our Kunku scholars, our scholarship recipients. Uh, and some of those scholars were people that I interviewed. I saw them at the very beginning of their right. scholarship. And you know, I saw them again at the end. And being able to see how they've grown. And you know, you see that the people that you've worked with have you know, gone on, they've entered the workforce, uh, you know, they've changed, they've become more confident. I think this is truly one of the best feelings about doing this line of work of you know, developing people is to see you know, where they go. Um, in fact, I think just yesterday, one of my students um, who I taught in school who then went on to join our Closing the Gap program, he messaged me and he said, hey, do you want to check my application essay? I'm applying for a scholarship to go to Oxford or Cambridge. And I was amazed because I was like, wow, this guy is aiming to go to Oxford or Cambridge. That's insane. Right. Um, that's incredible. You know, it really shows that that's a difference there. You know, this is a kid that I met in Form 4. Um, and to see how much he's developed, how confident he's become, um, it's truly one of the best feelings. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Kola Ratnam Vijay Kumar. He's the Program Manager at Tunku Abdul Rahman Foundation. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Redefining Success, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.